If something just doesn't make sense, maybe it's because it's wrong. You know that short little phrase that comes at the top of the episode? This case, it was, if something sounds wrong, maybe it is. Well, guess what? Today, that was prophetic of me, because I totally messed up one of the points that you're about to hear later on, so I want to throw in a correction. And I got to do a shout out to David Bates. David Bates just emailed me and uh, let me know that I got something wrong. I greatly appreciate when listeners like you guys do that to quickly let me know if I messed something up because Catholicism is a team sport. We need each other because sometimes I get things wrong. So I'm going to go through what exactly I got wrong in this episode and uh, yeah, what the right view is. So David points out that um, I said, hey, if somebody received all the sacraments, they would still have to go to purgatory. No, that's totally wrong. Um, What I meant to target is that if Hitler repented in this Protestant conception, so if he had this full Protestant type of conversion, which only represents um, prayer, only represents a type of uh, repentance in prayer, then at that point, yes, purgatory is the best he could get. Also, Hitler was baptized. So if Hitler received all of the sacraments, meaning all of the sacraments that Hitler could receive, i.e. he received confession and anointing of the sick at that point, um, those don't clear the temporal debt in purgatory. So you'd still have to go to purgatory if Hitler specifically received all the sacraments that Hitler could receive. But David points out that if he received all, all the sacraments, meaning baptism too, well, at that point, no, there would be no temporal debt remaining. He wouldn't have to go to purgatory. If you get baptized right before you die, there's no sins afterwards, straight to heaven with you. That's because you become a new man. You become a new creation in Christ through baptism. Now, there's one more thing that could happen, and that is he could receive a beast of an indulgence. Um, He could receive an apostolic pardon, and that could remove the temporal uh, debt of sin. That's possible. All right, so just to review, if Hitler only repented, the best he could hope for is purgatory, and that's what I meant to focus on in the Protestant ideas episode. Um, So at that point, yeah, the best is purgatory. I got a little carried away saying, and all the sacraments, and all of this, and all of that. So don't listen to me when you get to that part of the episode. Um, Yeah, I'm dealing with a wee bit of infant-induced sleep deprivation, so I'm just going to go ahead and blame it on that. So if Hitler received the sacraments that he could receive, confession and anointing a sick, then yes, he goes to purgatory. If Hitler had been unbaptized, and then was baptized for the first time at the point of his death, then he's cleared of 100% everything. However, sub-point here, if this happened, but after his baptism, before he died, he flashes back to his old former habits of, say, murderously hating all the Jews, then that would represent a post-baptismal sin which would have to be corrected in purgatory. So basically his soul is entirely straightened out, perfected, and then it gets warped because of these old habits, which he's used to. And uh, then that would have to be purgated. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could receive that pardon. He could receive a type of indulgence because although God never wants injustice, 
God always wants mercy, and mercy is paying the debt of justice on behalf of another, out of love. And we can do this for one another. We can help to cover temporal debts. The church can do this, and Jesus can do this. So there are ways that we can cover these temporal debts for others. So there's stuff that we can do. Maybe we'll do an entire episode one day on indulgences, because I don't think we have one yet. Um, And finally, I think I said in this here episode that purgatory is the uh, paying of the temporal debt just is synonymous with the untwisting of your soul. And I think that's the best way to make sense of different things in the tradition. Some parts of the tradition stress the temporal punishment side. And some parts of the tradition, especially more recent stuff, seems to stress the fact that purgatory really is just purifying and making you ready for heaven. And I think the answer to making these two things all fit together is that it's both, that the purification is painful, and the point of the pain is not just pain for pain's sake, it's pain for purification's sake. So if Hitler is baptized and his soul is fully untwisted and it doesn't get retwisted by sin and evil dispositions, then an untwisted soul is ready for heaven. I think I clarified that enough. We kind of went through that two times because I want you to be 100% clear on that. So, um, yeah, shout out to David Bates. Uh, Thanks for catching that. I really appreciate it. If you guys ever hear anything that I screwed up in the episode, let me know. Seriously, email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And be sure to check out um, David's podcast, Pints with Jack, and check out his website, the the RestlessPilgrim.net, RestlessPilgrim.net. Uh, check out his stuff. Uh, he also writes for Catholic Answers and has wonderful things there as well. All right, on with the episode. Oh, one last thing. I believe Hitler was raised Catholic, so he would have been confirmed also. That's why he could have all of the sacraments at the end of his life if he's in a state of grace. I don't think I mentioned, of course, he could receive the Eucharist in a state of grace as we all could. All right, there you go. I think that's all the corrections. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we are ripping through five different Protestant ideas that I think even Protestants ought to reject. If you're not Catholic, you're not under any teaching authority, then you're free to choose the ideas that you think are closest to what Scripture is saying. And I think all five of these ideas, although they're popular and maybe traditional in many, but not all parts of the Protestant world, I just think compared to Scripture, they just don't make sense. And, And logically, they don't follow. So even if you're a Protestant, I know you may have heard these ideas a lot. You may have a lot of respected teachers, theologians, and pastors parroting these, but I think you should drop them because, well, they're illogical and they don't pertain to Scripture. So what are they? Well... Number one on my list, and they're not necessarily in order, but this may qualify as the most ridiculous of them all, and that is that all sins are equal. How many times have you heard this? When I was a Protestant, I heard many churches say exactly that, sometimes with sighs of resignation. Well, you know, all sins are equal after all, and people just would nod along, but that's about as wrong as you can possibly get. Now, the smarter of the theologians do nuance this otherwise incredibly silly claim. They point out, completely fairly, that, well, they're not equal in that they deserve equal punishment. 
but I mean, that's a big concession. And it's true. As evidence, I will give you the Old Testament. <laughs> Read any part of the law and you will find that there's differential punishments based on the crime. In fact, we learned that the, uh, the laws are pretty much laid out in order of importance, which means there is a hierarchy here. And we also have Paul listing sins which place you outside of the new covenant. So there's a distinction which carries on into the new. And Jesus talks about how there are some servants who are beaten with few versus some beaten with many stripes because then there's the sin with full knowledge and one without as full knowledge in his example. So therefore, their sins are not equal. So there are different punishments, and many Protestant theologians will admit this much and say it's not equal in that way. However, they'll commonly lean on the verse that says, for the wages of sin is death. But that's not exactly the slam dunk they're looking for, because I could re reorder that phrase to say another true statement. For instance, the wages of car crashes are death, right? The result of car crashes are death sometimes, is death. But it doesn't mean it always is, because there's plenty of car crashes which don't result in death. Let me give you another one that might be even better. The wages of speeding is a traffic ticket, right? That's a true statement. I think we can all say that. If you speed, you're going to get a ticket. The wages of speeding are traffic tickets. But that's not always true. So I don't think that this phrase, the wages of sin is death, mean that it's every sin or it's always death. Now, it could potentially maybe mean this. I, I don't think it says that um, it, it contradicts that. It just isn't clear enough to give us the idea that every single sin leads to death. It does not say that as, you know, my variety of different statements following the same structure, I think, show pretty clearly. But that's not all we have to rely on. What if I told you there was a part of scripture that was clear about if all sins lead to death or not? Like, incredibly clear. Like, well, it reads like this. 1 John 5.16, we're kicking off. If you see your brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, boom, we can stop there right? We can stop there. There are sins which do not lead to death. John writes it, boom, 1 John 5, 16. But let's keep going. You should pray and God will give them life. I refer to whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. <laughs> Could that have been clearer? So not all sin leads to death. John writes that about, what, three times in a very short paragraph? So he clarifies all wrongdoing is sin, like, duh, <laughs> but not all sin leads to death. Now, some people might back away even further. They'll say, all right, well, all sin is equal, but it's uh, deserving of different punishments, which would be a strange thing to say, but whatever. Um, and all sin is equal, but not all sin leads to death. But, 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 but wait, we can salvage this, guys. All sin is equal because everybody gets the same eternal punishment in hell if they don't repent. Um, not quite. So hell is eternal. Nobody leaves 
hell, but it's not true that everybody gets the same punishment in hell. That would be, that would make God into a monster, like an unbaptized baby. That has been a you know, bone of contention for a long time. Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? Where do they go? Well, although it hasn't been defined by the church, it seems a very popular opinion is that they're in the very top level of hell, which, wait for it, actually has the natural um, graces, the natural uh, pleasures that one can enjoy, just not the supernatural ones which come from being connected into Christ's body through baptism because they weren't baptized. It's described as like the Garden of Eden. So that's the very top of hell, quite likely. This is something that's allowed within the church's tradition, that hell could be as good as the Garden of Eden. Dante, of course, gives us a wonderful picture of hell with all of the descending levels, where it's not the same punishment. They're punishments tailored to the crime and tailored to the severity. The Protestant theologians who might lean on this idea have already given up the idea that the same sin should have the same punishment. Because I, there's very few that would say that in light of the Old Testament, in light of the New Testament, in light of the very words of Christ. So, is all hell eternal for everyone? Mm-hmm. Is it the same punishment? Of course not. That would make God into an unjust monster. So, no. Um. All right, well... I got one last way that they could try to salvage this idea. All sins are equal because um, all sins are bad or God doesn't like any sin. Well, if that's all you're saying, that's just like a tautology. That statement is practically meaningless because it's just reiterating the definition of the words contained within the statement, right? Sin is just that which displeases God. And you're saying, well, all sin displeases God. That's just tautology. So it's an empty statement at best, and it's just a flatly ridiculous statement at worst. So all sins are equal? I think people need to stop saying that, because even if you do go through all of the qualifications, it just is going to confuse people and think that God's unjust, that Scripture's arbitrary, and that God's a monster. <laughs> so it's a terrible thing to say. It's a ridiculous thing to believe, and that's why it's number one on my list of things that even Protestants should reject, even if it is popular in your particular tradition. All right, number two, penal substitution. This says that Jesus was an innocent man who took the place of us guilty ones and then received our punishment. So whatever punishment was coming at us, Jesus received that punishment as the guilty person. So some even push it further to say that Jesus became sin. Like, yeah. Um, no, that's, that's not right. Here's why. That's not justice. We were not saved through a giant cosmic injustice. We were saved through a giant cosmic mercy. And mercy and justice are not opposites. The opposite of justice is injustice, and that's bad. It would be unjust for God to punish an innocent man as if he were guilty. But that is the claim of penal substitution, and that would be making God into a very unjust judge, which he's not. So, 
there are some who said that, um, well, there's punishment language here in the scripture, and Jesus was punished in a sense, right? He got a sentence, ergo, we have penal substitution. The problem is, the specific claim here is not that he got punished at all. That, that is true, right? There was a punishment that was applied to him that was unjust. Um, but it wasn't unjust because God wanted it. It was unjust because of the unjust authorities. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, says the creed. So his punishment, we know for a fact, could not be, have been the same that we would have received because our punishment is, as we just talked about in the earlier section, an eternal punishment in hell. Did Jesus spend an eternity in hell? Well, no, he didn't, right? He was, he was dead for three days, not, not an eternity. Some people try to make incredibly grand claims about the nature of time to say that somehow in those three days, Jesus somehow spent an eternity in hell. But that's not how eternity works, guys. Not at all. Eternity is forever. And that would be to say that he traversed an infinite amount of time, completed it. So there's a start, right, when he dies. There's an end, that's when he's resurrected. But he somehow accomplished eternity. That's not eternity. If you take a number line and you put a stop on the left side, and then on the right side, that is by definition a finite period. So because Jesus entered hell and then he left it, <laughs> um, that means by definition it was not an eternity. No matter what kind of wild claims you make about time dilation and the nature of time and this and that, it is absolutely factually impossible. So we know for a fact that Jesus did not receive the same punishment for this reason. Um, now, some people point out the scripture says that he took on our sins. Now, that is true. Jesus did take on our sins. But we have to be very nuanced in what this means. Because the Protestant reformers and many that came after say that he became sin. That's blasphemy. That is completely wrong. He was entirely innocent from start to finish. Um, instead, he took on our sin in the way that a sacrifice takes on our sin. And a sacrifice isn't tortured for the sins of the people, but the sin is laid on him so that he can go down and destroy it in death. That's what Jesus did. He took that sin and he destroyed it by going to death. And I'll add one thing more. To really hold to the idea that Jesus received the punishment that would have gone to sinners would imply that Jesus went into the unjust hell, not the hell of the righteous. But that's not what the tradition teaches. When Jesus went down into hell, he looses the captives. Who would be the captives? It'd be those Old Testament figures who were in Abraham's bosom, who were righteous but couldn't actually ever go to heaven because, well, the Messiah hadn't come yet. So he descends to the place of the righteous dead, not the unrighteous dead. This was a, this was a rescue mission. It wasn't an eternal punishment. This is not penal substitution. This is, as we'll learn, Christus Victor, which is one of the better views, I think. Um, 
So let's, uh, let's move on to uh, some of those better views. Christus Victor, I think, is extraordinarily illustrative, and it goes very far back into the tradition, as pretty much as early as you can possibly find, and is absolutely present in Paul. Um, this is where Christ is confronting sin, confronting evil, confronting suffering, and more than anything, confronting Satan and the demons. He tricks Satan, he enters hell almost like a Trojan horse, and he destroys death from the inside. He's confronting injustice and evil, and then he turns the whole thing on its head by swallowing up in love, and instead of dying as, as, as one to be, to be mocked, rising as one to be worshipped. What he did in this view is seek out the very place, the stronghold of evil, the house of Satan, defeat Satan, and then claim his house back for himself and for the saints. What Adam lost, Christ comes back as the new Adam to take back. Um, that's the long and the short of it. And I think that that's an excellent explanation of what happened at the cross. And the reason why it was bloody and painful was because Jesus was confronting the most evil, dark, depraved um, place in, in Satan's kingdom, the, the doorway to hell itself, death, and going through it to destroy his power. There's also ransom theory, which I think is excellent and has a long theological pedigree also. Now, it does get tricky about where the ransom was paid. Was it paid to Satan? Was it paid to the Father? But there's a sense in which the dominion of the world changed hands because Jesus, being God, is of such enormous value in his death that it just buys back all creation. That's true. And we can understand his sacrifice through not just that Christus Victor warrior motif, but also through this ransom. He gave up his life in order to um, get back everything that was lost through sin. And the last one is the propitiation sacrifice idea. And I like this one a lot. This one says that Jesus's act of love poured out through his life, death, and resurrection was of such enormous value that it pays the debt of sin. And because he's God, his payment is infinite. And because he became man, it's credited to our account. And when we join with Christ, then the riches which he won um, are really and truly um, riches which can be salvific to us too. So we enter into that very same body sacramentally through baptism, through the Eucharist, so that um, we can enter into the riches of what Christ did, and that can begin to pour into our lives in the form of um, actual graces transforming us. This model says that Christ's suffering and what Christ paid, what Christ did, wasn't just to get punished so that God could get even or something. It was actually God on behalf of man restoring and amending a friendship that was lost through sin. It was Christ making it, making it up to God, the Father, through his actions, giving him something of such enormous value to restore a friendship 
not just to to bear a punishment. So in this way, it was an act of penance, not punishment. It was something that was done to restore friendship. And the act of penance model, I think, which would be under a type of propitiation, um, I think it's highlighted all the way back in Genesis, where the original penance gave to mankind is that by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And by the work of Jesus Christ, in the thorns and thistles, which are one of the curses of the earth, under the crown of thorns, he actually brings about the Eucharistic meal that gives us our spiritual food. He accomplishes the original penance that was given to Adam. Um, We're told that the earth will not yield of its fruit. So Jesus overturns that by rising out of the earth as the first fruits of redemption. So Jesus fulfills the penance of Adam. That's how he saved us. Now, a lot of atheists, particularly the ones online, will make fun of Christianity as Christ's sacrifice being unjust. You punished an innocent man and you think that's somehow okay? Or, wait a minute, God sent his son to get murdered? That's some type of divine child abuse. And although it can be a bit inflammatory and hyperbolic, they're not wrong. Those are fair critiques of penal substitution because it does make God a monster. It does make him sending his son unjust because he would be an innocent man taking the punishment of a guilty one. But that's not what happened. Christ won a victory against Satan. He paid the ransom to win back all of creation, and he made a propitiatory sacrifice, fulfilling the original penance of Adam and going on beyond that to restore friendship with God. That's what actually happened. And you'll notice that that's not subject to the atheist critiques. That's not something to be mocked. That's something to be celebrated. Number three, if evil people repent at the end of their lives, they'll go straight to heaven. I heard this one time and time again. Um, It's particularly popular to bring up in more fundamentalist circles. And I think atheists are like, isn't that kind of screwed up? Like Hitler could, at the end of his life, just say a sinner's prayer or something, and then poof, right up to heaven? How is that just? That's unjust. And they say, no, it's merciful. But as I've said a thousand times, the opposite of justice is not mercy. The opposite of justice is injustice. God never wants injustice. That's evil. He wants mercy. Mercy is to fulfill the debt of justice out of love on behalf of another. So what's up with this? Evil people repenting at the end of their life, going straight to heaven. Um... Intuitively, I think it's wrong. We think that Hitler would just be getting off scot-free, and that seems wrong. Um, They're denying purgatory. That's what's going on here. They're denying the idea that you'll pay the temporal debt of your sins, and you'll have your soul untwisted. And yeah, that hurts. We all know what it's like to have our soul untwisted, to have to act against sins which are deep-seated. We know that's not fun. Well, in order to become perfect and holy and enter heaven, that process needs to happen. It's not us who does it. God does it. So in purgatory, that untwisting of our soul is what's paying this temporal debt back. 
Jesus paid the eternal debt that we could never pay. But the temporal debts are something that we actually have to deal with. Christ wants us to model his life, death, resurrection, everything. And part of Christ's life is paying the debt of sin. And that's what we get to do. It's an opportunity. It's how we make friendship with God fully and completely before we enter the friendship of God that just is heaven. So I've done a full episode defending purgatory. You can go back and listen to that one if you like. But I think that we can just lean on 1 Corinthians 3. Because I think that destroys this crazy myth that people just repent at the end of their life and immediately go to heaven with no purgatory and no punishment in between. Here's what scripture says. Now, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through flames. So what would happen if Hitler, at the end of his life, fully decided to follow Jesus in the last moments? Maybe he was baptized, maybe he got every single possible sacrament he could at that point. He, he really tried to give his life to Christ in all the proper means. What happens? Well, at that point, there is a foundation laid, one of Jesus Christ. But everything built in his entire life is wood, hay, and straw. It's something that will be burned, and he will pass through fire, and he'll experience it as a loss. It says the builder will suffer loss. Right there, will suffer loss. But yeah, he would, he could be saved. Anybody can be saved. But it's going to be as one escaping through flames. In other translations, it says, as one escaping through a burning building. Does that sound fun? Does that sound enjoyable? No, that sounds uh, sounds scary, painful, penitential. And that's what actually scripture put, points out. So I don't see how you can possibly maintain the statement that evil people go straight to heaven. When scripture just says that, it does describe the process. And you cannot deny that there is fire before heaven that does cause loss to the builder and it does burn up those things which are evil. That just is, that's the way it is, guys. Number four, souls are asleep until the resurrection. Now, it's true that scripture does talk about souls being, or people being asleep when they're dead, but that's phenomenological language. That's just calling something as it appears. Scripture also says that the sun rises and sets. That's the way it appears. But in reality, the earth is turning. We wouldn't make some type of grand claim about, well, maybe actually the sun moves and the earth is still. Based on that language, we would just see it for what it is. Another thing that sleep is doing, in addition to just describing what it looks like, because when people are dead, it looks like they're sleeping, it also subtly implies that they could wake up. So when scripture is talking about sleep, I think it's 
laying out something very theologically important, especially in the Old Testament, when the idea of resurrection is really not fully understood or stressed, at least not early on. When it talks about them sleeping, there's a subtle understanding that they could one day wake up, like when the Messiah comes. Now, here's what I would say to this idea, that souls are asleep until the resurrection. That's a positive claim. Give me one, and I mean one example of a soul that's seen sleeping in the afterlife. I'll wait. Go ahead. Find me one. You won't. You don't. You never do. But do we ever see uh, the dead in the afterlife? Hmm? Yes, a number of times. One, Samuel. Samuel died. He's seen by Saul. Samuel is aware of the things which are going on. He uh, talks to Saul, clearly awake. Um, Jeremiah in the book of Maccabees, he's awake, he's alive. I think he even gives a sword to uh, uh, Judas Maccabees. So he was seen awake. Now, I mean, you might not accept that book of the Bible if you're a Protestant, but I mean, clearly the Jews at the time believed that people were awake when they were dead. That's evidence right there. And then we have the book of Revelation. Every single person, all the saints, the martyrs, everybody is awake. They're praising God. They're praying, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Unless you want to say that everybody's sleep talking, I think you've been disproved. And here's my favorite. And this is why the soul sleep hypothesis, I think, is most damned. John 8.56 says, and this is Jesus talking, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it. So Abraham saw Jesus' day, and now he's glad, <laughs> right? So how exactly does that work if he's just asleep from the time that he died? Hmm? So it seems that Jesus is even saying, that the dead can understand what's going on. Thought of seeing the day? He saw it and was glad. So, this statement, disproved. And uh, as far as having like a pedigree, uh, this one just doesn't. It seems to pretty much just pop up like, or at least it's only popular as an American thing in the 1800s. I don't think that God just revealed a new theological truth for the first time here in the U.S. in the 1800s. I think people made it up. The rapture. Now this, in its present form, is a totally new and made-up idea in like the 1900s in the U.S. Um, if you really want to bother the rapture fanatics, just point out that to the extent that there is some type of rapture or taking up in Scripture, they have it completely backwards. The bad people are raptured, not the good people. So, here's our daily reading comprehension test, guys. We're pulling from, what is this, Matthew 23? For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not, and knew not until the flood came. And took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two shall be in the field. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one taken, and the other left. So who was taken away with the flood? Who did the flood take away? 
the bad people, right? <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving to marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So there we go. The people who are, quote, raptured are the bad guys. If you didn't believe me, here's another section. This is from Matthew 13. Jesus is laying out the parable of the wheat and the tares. But he said to them, no, lest you gather up the, so he's saying, hey, don't pull out the tares early because they're intertwined with the roots of the wheat. He says, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, <clears throat> first, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So who gets gathered up first? The good guys or the bad guys? The bad guys right here. First, gather the tares, bind them into bundles to burn them. That's what happens first. So what are we waiting for? Well, put simply, we're just waiting for Christ's return, where we will meet him in the air. That part's true. And this is pretty much describing the par-for-the-course way of meeting a king. People in the cities come out to meet the king who's coming to them and then usher him in. What does that look like? Well, it's modeled in the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, as recorded in the Gospels, where everybody comes out to meet him and shouts, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, blessed to see, all that good stuff. That's going to happen at a much greater scale. So the dead will rise for first, we'll meet him up in the air, and then he will make a triumphant entry. That's what we're waiting for. So the church in most older Protestant um, traditions take an amillennialist view. And here's why. The millennium is the reign of Christ. Let me just ask you, who's reigning right now? Satan or Jesus? Hmm? It's a really important question. And I find that when you ask people, they really waffle on it. Like, eh, gee, I'm not sure. But isn't that a really important question? Shouldn't that be something that we get right? Shouldn't you know who's ruling the world, Satan or Jesus? The answer is quite clearly Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is certainly reigning. He rose again, ascended, and sits at the right hand of the Father. He's in charge, guys. He talks about how when a strong man guards his house, it's safe. But when an even stronger man comes and defeats him, well, then that's it. He's gone. <laughs> so Jesus is the strong man who defeated Satan. And now this house is his. And the saints also rule. Um, so the idea in Catholicism that different saints are prayed for for different reasons are because they're legitimately delegated some authority. That's part of the reigning in the millennial kingdom, something that we'll eventually enjoy as well. Um, if you got the Christus Victor thing correct, you would probably have gotten this one correct too. But if you get the first one wrong, I think it's understandable why you might be a little confused. Now, there's an extent to which Satan is not completely gone, but his power has been massively curtailed. Um, and evil can come from more places than just Satan. There's also, you know, us. So that is uh, 
So that's the rapture, guys. I don't think that uh, you should accept the idea that uh, we're going to be, uh, the good people are going to be taken away because it's the bad people who are taken away. I think you should be just waiting for the second coming of Christ. And I do think that you should accept that Christ is on the throne now and that there's a millennial kingdom, which is going on for a thousand years until finally his absolute return comes and every amount of evil is vanquished. That's what we're hoping for. Now, I will point out that many of these things which I address, these these five, just to review them, we have um, all sins are equal, penal substitution, um, what is it? soul sleep, and evil people, if they repent at the end of their life, go straight to heaven. And finally, the rapture. I think that these are basically meant to defend against Catholic claims and implications. So the all sins are equal, if they accept that, then they can skirt around the need to go to confession for mortal sins. The section that we just read says, don't bother praying for mortal sins. Now we can get into all of what that passage is meaning, but Catholics can just say, okay, fine, I'll go to confession. Done. If you make a distinction between soul, between sins which harm your soul and destroy the divine life in your soul, well then, that's going to make you open to a remedy which goes over and above what you can do yourself. So I think that's probably what is strengthening this, this ridiculous claim that all sins are equal. It's seeking to defend against the Catholic claim that there are mortal and venial sins and that mortal sins would require the church's remedy. I think I've done a whole one on confession. Maybe I haven't. Maybe I should. All right. Penal substitution. This means that Protestants can deny purgatory, penance, the Catholic understanding of infused righteousness through the sacraments. And you know what? That last one's probably the most important. We think that Christ justifies us, not just in like a legal declaration, but in the sense that when you hit justify left, justify right on your Microsoft Word document, everything actually shifts or gets in line to the left or to the right side. That's what we mean by justification. The grace of Jesus Christ actually puts us in line with God. It doesn't just declare us to be right. It moves us into the right position. It's an infused righteousness. It's not just a declared one. But I think with penal substitution, you can avoid that implication and therefore avoid the sacramental theology, which is alien to the Protestant tradition. Um, I think that uh, um, the rapture, takes our eyes off of the idea that there could be an earthly authority today that is actually reigning and ruling, that the kingdom of God includes the church on earth, and that maybe that church has authority. So a variety of these all seem to be, uh, all seem to be targeting Catholic doctrines. Now, for a Protestant listener, Maybe you say, well, I don't accept confession. I don't accept the church's authority. Um, I don't accept infused righteousness. I don't accept, you know, the, the other things that are targeted. Okay, that's a different conversation. But just look at these five ideas on their own merit and say, even though you may 
disagree with where the church would eventually go, can't you at least say that these have got to be false? I mean, all sins are equal. We basically reduce that down to a tautology at best. In every other way, it seems to flatly um, go against Scripture. Penal substitution is legitimately awful if it was true. And I don't think that's the kind of God you want to serve. Um, the idea that evil people who repent at the end of their lives go straight to heaven is somehow fair or just, I know that that does not comport with your conscience. And souls being asleep has literally no basis, and in every single time in Scripture we see somebody who's dead, they're always awake. So, come on. <laughs> in the rapture, I think probably the best argument against this is it's unknown until one place almost 2,000 years after the founding of the church. You're not going to tell me that that's what Christ told the apostles, are you? So, there you go, guys. Protestant listeners, you're not bound by the magisterium. Make the best sense of the Bible that you can and reject these five ideas. All right, well, that's all I have for you today. Um, yeah, definitely wanted to hit those. I think uh, atheists um, think this is what Christianity means, and it's not. And I think that they're right to call into question these um, and other claims, because they are unjust, illogical, and man-made. That's a critique that Catholics and atheists would actually agree on when it comes to most of these claims. So there you go. We're going to wrap it up here for real. Um, email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com with any of your comments and questions or any episode ideas too. And share this or any other episode with a friend. This is the time of year that podcasts take a huge dive in listenership as everybody starts school years and kind of switches up their pace of life. So a little bit of extra sharing would always help me out. All righty. Well, thanks for listening.